Welcome to the Antioch Austin podcast. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you. For more information about Antioch Austin, please check our website at AntiochATX.com. My name's Chris. I'm one of our pastors on staff. Let me tell you a little story about my life. Um, I grew up in a family that valued hard work. My dad was a, a small business owner, and so he taught us by modeling first what it looked like to work hard. You know, I remember being just a small kid, and I would be brought to the office with my dad on a Saturday, and he would, he would show us what he was doing, and he would work hard, and then I would run around and terrorize the place for a little while. And then as I got a little bigger, I would not only go with him to the office, but I would actually work for him in the office. And when I got tired of that, he said, great, you're still going to work. And he would send me out to, to mow yards. And so I grew up in this family that understood the value of hard work. And, and really what it meant was, you know, when you work hard, you get good results. You get what you deserve. And so if you put in good effort, you get good things. If you put in mediocre effort, you get mediocre things, and, and so on. And so that was the philosophy I had growing up. Well, it, it didn't quite translate fully to school. You know, outside of school and athletics and opportunities to earn income, I was like all about it. I'm going to work hard. But when it came to school, I was like, I'm going to do enough, enough to get by. I was an okay student. I was a solid B student. Didn't quite want to put in the effort to become an A student. So I was just a solid B student, and that worked for me until... I took this one class in college, and my mediocre efforts didn't quite yield the fruit that I was used to, and I was feeling the pressure. I knew it was crunch time. I had to pull off this grade because my, my dad was helping me with school, and, and I knew if I didn't pull off the grade, I was going to have to tell him that I failed this class, and so I go in. I take the final, and sure enough, I fail. And I, I'm like, all right, at least I'm going to get ahead of this thing, and I'm going to go talk to my dad and let him know that I failed the class before the transcript gets sent to him. And so I, I go to him, and I let him know, and I'm beating myself up big time because we're a family that works hard. And I'm a person that wants to, to achieve and wants to do well. And, you know, just in school, it was just like do well to a certain point. And I hadn't quite done that. And so I go to my dad, and I, and I tell him, hey, look, I didn't, I didn't measure up. I, I failed this class, and I'm going to have to retake it. And I wasted your money. And we're going to have to pay for this class again. And, and his response was not what I was expecting. His response was very understanding, very gracious. And he said, yep, you're going to have to retake that class, but you're going to do better this next time. And you're going to work hard. And I, I left that conversation just like, I don't know what to do with this. And in fact, it shook me so much that an hour later, I went to him and said, we need to rehab this conversation. You were way too easy on me. I need you to be harder on me. I need you to come down on me. I didn't get what I deserve. What I deserved is you to rant and yell and let me know that I have screwed up. And he looked at me and said, I'm not going to do that. You're beating yourself up enough for both of us. And the reality is, is I believe in you, and I know that you're going to do better. See, what had happened that day is this belief that you get what you deserve had been confronted. See, most of us have that somewhere in our mind. It's, it's part of our actually culture. Our American culture tells us you get what you deserve. 
You work hard, you get re- good rewards. You don't, then you don't necessarily get those things. And, and it's true in many circumstances, and it's reinforced in some ways, but it's not true in every circumstance. See, you don't always get what you deserve. That's just not how life always works. See, sometimes you, you get what you don't deserve. We're in week two of our series called Original Gangsters, where we're looking at five books of the Bible. These original gangsters, these people that, that pioneered, what does it mean to be an original gangster? It means that, that you paved a way for people, but you weren't necessarily recognized in your time. See, there's, there's five books of the Bible that we're looking at right now, and they're, they're called the major prophets. And if you're new to the Bible, they come in the first half of the Bible. It's called the Old Testament. So the Bible is a collection of books. It's made up of 66 books. And in the, the first half of it, this, this Old Testament, there's 17 books that are called the prophetic writings. See, from a period of about 800 B.C., to 400 BC, God raised up prophets. They would be people who would speak to the nation of Israel and let them know what, was, what God wanted to say to them. And he, he wanted to give them encouragement and warning for when they were off track. And he wanted to give them hope for their future. And so he raised up these 17, these 16 prophets who would speak and write these 17 different books and they're the prophetic writings, and they're separated into to two different categories. There's the, the minor prophets, and then there's the major prophets. And what we're looking at in this series is these major prophets, these five books of the Bible. Last week, we looked at Isaiah. Today, we're looking at Jeremiah. And then there's Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel, these, these prophets that spoke to a people in the midst of chaos. See, in that time period, chaos was reigning. There was Three empires that were coming and going, the the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Persians. And it was causing chaos for the people, and the people were going astray from God. And so God was raising up these people to help call them back to who they were supposed to be. And the prophets were the ones who had that to say. And, you know, what makes these guys the major prophets and the other ones the minor prophets is not the importance of what they had to say. It's just the length in which they had to say it. The, The major prophets just said more. And today we're looking at the the major prophet who said the most. Jeremiah actually said the most words to the the people of Israel. And, you know, Jeremiah was, I want to give you some history on who he is and what this book is all about. Because the whole idea in this is we want you to know that the whole Bible is meant to point us to Jesus. We, We can find him everywhere throughout it. Sometimes we, we think about the Old Testament, and it's, oh, that's the Old Testament, that's the old stuff, I don't need to go there. But no, it actually reveals who God is. It shows us what he's like. And what we're going to see today is, is these guys were actually seeing a glimpse of who God was to be. They, they, they might not have been recognized in their time, like, like many originals aren't. But what they did is their words stood the test of time, and they paved a way for us to actually see who God is. See, Jeremiah was this guy that, that God had raised up. In about 627 B.C. is what most scholars think that he was raised up and he prophesied till about 586. And he spoke to the people of this time. And, and primarily what he was doing is he was accusing the people of Israel and saying, you guys are off. The way you're living is totally off. You've gone astray from God's ways. You're breaking the covenant. You're breaking the agreement that God has made with you and, and you're off. 
And you need to, to come back to God because if you don't, I want to give you a warning that, that judgment is coming. And so he's giving these, these warnings to the people of Israel. But he's also speaking to the nations in general. And he's, he's saying, there's hope for your future too. See, Isaiah's, I mean, Jeremiah's, you know, marked by a couple different things. He speaks to the people of Israel. And what he, the primary message he has to tell them is that, that he's uprooting. God's uprooting and he's tearing things down because they've, they've gone after own thing, their own way and he's got to uproot things and he's got to tear some things down because the things that they've planted are not good for them and the things they've built up are not great for them. And, and he says, I got, God's got to uproot those things and he's got to tear those things down and he wants to plant new things and he wants to build new things up so that you can actually live according to his ways. Isaiah, Jeremiah is telling these people that that's what he's going for. And, he's, and he writes this book to let those people know what God wants to say and what God wants to do. You know, the, the crazy thing about this book is after about 20 years of preaching and prophesying, Jeremiah was a, a very well-known guy in that day. He wasn't a very well-liked guy, you know, but he was a very well-known guy. And because he was one of the few prophets of the day. See, there were other prophets who were saying other things. But they were saying, hey, people, you're doing great. Don't worry about it. God's pleased with you. And Jeremiah was the one saying, hold up. Things are not okay. You are not following after God's ways. You are breaking the law. You are acting, you're actually running after other gods. You're not acting according to, to God. You're not even following his ways. And so, so Jeremiah was speaking out these things. And he was gaining some some attention from people, but it wasn't the kind of attention that you and I most likely want. We, most of us don't want to grow up to be hated. But Jeremiah had grown up to be hated. And so after about 20 years of doing this, he takes all of the, the things that he said, and he hires this ghost writer, this guy named Baruch, and they, they compile everything into this book of Jeremiah. And it, and it tells this cohesive story of what was going on in that day what was happening in that time, not only from the prophecies of what Jeremiah would say, because Jeremiah actually lived to see many of his prophecies fulfilled. You know, in, in the first half of Jeremiah, the first 24 chapters, you know, as Jeremiah's prophesying to the people that, hey, you've broken God's ways. And because of that, there's going to be punishment to that. And, and what's actually going to happen is, is Babylon, this empire out there, is actually going to come and they're going to conquer you. And they're, they're going to destroy your city. They're going to burn the temple in which you worship God in. And he, they're actually going to carry you off into exile. And for the first 24, 25 chapters, that's what he says. And, and you're going to live in this place of exile for, for 70 years. Well, Jeremiah would actually live to see that happen. What he spoke actually came to pass. And he would watch the witness. He would witness the destruction of the city. He would witness the, the destruction of the temple. He would, he would witness people being carried off. And, and the book goes on to, to have this kind of sandwich where he, in, in chapters 26 through 29, he's again warning them and saying, this is how it's going to happen. This is how the destruction is going to happen. And on the bun of that sandwich, it, it says that, that, that he gives the detailed account of actually how it happened, and, and Jeremiah actually himself gets kidnapped and taken to Israel. And so it's this really hard life. But right there in the middle of the book, there's these chapters about hope. 
from chapters 30 through 33, sandwiched right into the middle, there's this message of hope that though the people have broken covenant with God, though they have stopped obeying his ways, though they have stopped doing what he's called them to do and being who he's called them to be, that there's hope for their future. Really what he's saying is that I want you to know that even though you have not held up your end of the bargain, sin will not win. Sin will not get the final say. That my promises and my faithfulness will still have the final say, even when you have broken the ways, even when you have stepped outside the covenant, even when you have not listened to me and gone your own way, I will still be faithful. Is what Jeremiah says here in the middle of it. Verse chapter 31, let's just look at it and see what it has to say. We're going to look at Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. It says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. This is critical right here. It says, I'm going to make a new covenant with the people of Israel. Because here's the deal, the people had broken the old covenant. Jeremiah is looking at them saying, you've, you've messed things up, guys. But you know what? God's going to be faithful. God's going to be faithful to you. You may feel like you've messed up your life. But here in this, we see that God is faithful to make a way for us. Even when we've made a mistake, even when we've messed something up, God has been faithful to make a way for us. He, he is offering a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was like a, a husband to them, declares the Lord. See, when the people went after other gods, you know, Jeremiah compares a lot of the, the idolatry of the people as adultery. That God was faithful, but the people ran after other gods. They wanted to be like other nations, and they like prostituted themselves out to other things. And some of those things were, were grotesque and vile. They, they even began to engage in child sacrifice. And God was saying, you've, I've been faithful to you, but you've been unfaithful to me. But still, I will give you a new covenant. This covenant, in verse 33, he says, This covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put, their law, put the law on their minds and write it in their hearts. Before the law was written on tablets. You know, the law of Moses, it was over 400 laws. We recognize it as the Ten Commandments. It was, it was written on these stones, and the people had to try to remember them. But he's saying there's coming a day under this new covenant where it won't be written on stone, it'll be written on you. It'll be in you, and it'll be lived out through you. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor and say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the very least to the greatest, declares the Lord. And I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Yeah, that's an amen. He will remember their sins no more. That's the new covenant. See, the old covenant, what it was, was this agreement that the people made with God. 
And they said, we will obey your ways. We will follow your laws. And because of that, God will then pour out his protection and his blessing upon them. See, but God knew that the the people were going to struggle with that. That the 400 laws that he had given them to follow, they were going to struggle to to keep up with. They were going to mess up along the way. He said, so, all right, so when you mess up, I'm actually going to make a provision for it. So in the old covenant, he said, what you'll do is you'll make these continual sacrifices, repeated again and again, these, these burnt offerings and these sacrifices. And what the people would do is they would bring animals to the temple and they would lay their hands on the, the animals and they would pass their sins to the animals and then the animals would be sacrificed. And when the sacrifice was made, God would allow it to wipe out their sin. But they would have to do this over and over and over and over and over because no animal was good enough to take the sin of the people once and for all. But that was just part of the deal. And so the people would have to continually do this. And every time it would remind them that they had fallen short, that they had fallen short, that they they weren't enough. And so they had to earn their way back to God by bringing these sacrifices. And along with that, there was this place called the most holy place. It was the spot in the temple where God allowed his presence to dwell. But only the high priest could go in there and only once a year. Because the people, they had sin in and on their lives. And God is holy and he is pure. And our sin actually creates a chasm between us. And because of the sin of the people, they couldn't draw near to his presence like that. God wanted his presence to be near the people, but their sin was keeping them distance from it. And so there was this most holy place and the priest would go in there and they would get to, he would get to experience the presence of God, but just one time a year. That was part of the old covenant. All these practices, all these rules, all these regulations were the way that we made our back, way back to God, the way we, we earned our way into his favor. And God just wasn't satisfied with that. He wasn't satisfied with us, with that. And and the people knew they needed a better way. And that better way would come in the form of Jesus. Jesus would come and he would come to the earth and he would live the life that no one else had been able to live before. He would live a perfect, sinless life. He would actually live out the fullness of the law, obeying all of it, helping people see God in it. And he would live in a way that confounded people, that amazed them. He was full of grace, truth, wisdom, understanding, the power of God, healings, miracles flowed through him. Everyone was accepted with him. The religious were accepted. The the poor were accepted. The broken were welcomed in. The wealthy were welcomed in. Everybody was welcome with Jesus. And he he was a conundrum to the people. They didn't quite know what to do with him. And so when they didn't quite know what to do with him, they killed him. Though he had done nothing wrong. But what they didn't realize is when they did this, they actually ushered in the new covenant. Because Jesus had never broken the law. Jesus had lived out the law. And so when they sacrificed him, and when he allowed himself to be sacrificed on the cross, he became the sacrifice for all sacrifices. No longer is any more sacrifice needed. Hebrews 10 actually tells it like this. It says, therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you're not pleased. Then he said, here am I. It is written about me in the scroll that I have come to do your will, my God. 
First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance to the law. Then he said, here I am. I've come to do your will. He set aside the first, the old covenant. He set it aside to establish the second, the new covenant. And by that, and by that will, we have been made holy through that sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, the priest stands before it and he performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices which could never take away the sins. But when this priest, speaking of Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. For the Holy Spirit does not testify. The Holy Spirit also testifies about this to us. And get this, this is, he's now quoting Jeremiah 31, the passage we just read. He says, this new covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, their sins and their lawless acts will be remembered no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice is no longer necessary. In short, in summary, you get what you don't deserve. You get what you don't deserve. It's not about how good you are. It's not about if you've done enough. It's not about if the scales of your good and your bad acts are, are tipping in the right way. It's no longer about that. It's no longer about if you can do the right enough things, if you can make the right way, if you can say the right things, follow the right rules, do the right stuff, then you can find yourself in this pleasing and perfect place with God. It's not like that. That's not how it works. We don't like that all the time because it pushes against us. We like it when we first hear it, but there's something about becoming a Christian that makes you think, I've got to go back to the old ways. There's something in the culture of it that makes us want to try to prove ourselves. We get stuck in these loops where we think, I've got to make my way back to God. I've got to prove my way back to God. I've, I've been thinking some thoughts that are just kind of weird and disruptive and, and they're not good, so I, I better do some right things. I better pray some good prayers. I better listen to some more worship. I better be kind to enough people. Then I can come into worship. Then I can come to church and I can feel good about myself then. See, we do that thinking that what we do earns our way back to God, but that's not how it works. God's not interested in your sacrifices. He's not interested in your burnt offerings anymore. That's not how it works. He's interested in that one sacrifice. He's interested in that one thing, the thing that Jesus did. The new covenant's totally different than the old covenant. It's not the same anymore. Where once we had to make sacrifices to make our way back to God, one sacrifice has been made. It, we don't need another one. We don't need yourself, we don't need you throwing yourself on the altar trying to prove how good you are for God. That's not going to get you there. It's about receiving what Jesus has done and saying, Your sacrifice was enough for me for everything that I've done, all time. So, where once there was a barrier between us and the presence of God, think about that. There was the presence of God was in this place called the temple. 
And it was closed off. The high priest could get there. But everybody else, there was distance. With the new covenant, that's a totally different scenario. Jesus said, I'll actually send the Holy Spirit. And where, where once the, the, the presence of God dwelt in this, this temple made by man, I'll actually put the presence of God in you. We could only hope to be in the presence of God before, and now the presence of God actually lives within us. Romans actually tells us that the same spirit, the same presence of God that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in you and me. How good is that? How radical is that? How different from the old covenant is that where once we had to make continual sacrifices, one was made for us. Where once the presence of God was distanced from us, now it is alive in me. That's amazing. It's incredible. It's hard to fathom what that is like. But Jesus demonstrated it for us. You know, there's an illustration of what Jesus did in Mark chapter 9, or Mark chapter 1. Jesus shows a picture of, of what it's like to receive and step into this new covenant. In Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, is actually the baptism of Jesus. But it paints for us a picture of what it's like to live in the new covenant with God. See, but that's what Jeremiah is speaking here. That's what he was prophesying about, is that we get what we don't deserve. What we deserve is punishment for our sin. What we deserve is separation. None of us are good enough to prove ourselves to God. The Bible actually says that there's no one righteous, not even one. Think of the best person you know. They're not good enough. They can't earn it. They don't deserve it. But Jeremiah is saying, because God knew that and he loves you so much and he wants you so bad that he made a new way. He made a better way. And Jesus demonstrates it for us with this baptism. It says that in Mark chapter 1, verse 9, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. And at once the Spirit sent him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan with the wild animals and the angels attended to him. In this, Jesus demonstrates for us what the new covenant is like. Jesus went in and he was baptized. He was dunked in the water. And just like when we are dunked in water, dirt washes away. What this is a picture of is your sin is washed away. It, you've been washed clean. This morning, if you walked in carrying baggage of what you've done, I want to tell you today, it's washed away. You can leave here today without that baggage. You can leave here today without carrying that thing anymore. Today's the day where you let that go. Whether it's for the first time that you're saying, I'm going to let go of what I've done and I'm going to receive what God's done for me. Or, or it's, you've been carrying this stuff around for a long time. And you've been coming to church, you've given your life to Jesus, but you've been carrying your own baggage around thinking, I've got to prove my way back to God. Today's the day where you let it go. What's the thing that you're holding on to that you need to let go today? 
That you need to say, you know what, when I, when I gave my life to Jesus, when I said yes to who he was, when I said I want to follow after you, he really did wash it all away. And I need to stop carrying this stuff with me. I need to stop paying penance. I need to stop trying to work my way back to God because God's already washed me clean. I, I, I've been washed clean. I can't prove myself to God. He's already done it for me. When Jesus came up out of that water, he was washed totally clean. When you and I give our lives to Jesus, we're washed clean of our sin. When God looks at you, he doesn't see you according to what you've done wrong. He sees you according to what Jesus did right. That's how he sees you now. When you look at yourself in the mirror, you should see Jesus has done right, not what I've done wrong. Jesus went under and he came up totally new. When he came up out of that water, said the heavens were ripped open. You know, it's a picture of the temple again. That temple where the, the most holy place where God's presence dwelt, there was this giant curtain that separated that space from the rest of the space. It kept the presence of God there and everything else out here. He said when Jesus was crucified on that cross, that curtain was torn from top to bottom, indicating that no longer is God's presence locked away. It's actually let loose. And it says that the Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove. And Jesus spoke of this in John 14, that the Spirit of God would come and he would make his home in our heart. The Spirit of God has been let loose and he lives within you and me. He empowers us to live the way that we've been called to live. And then what he does is he speaks affirmation over your life. Just like he said to Jesus that you're my son who I'm well pleased. He looks at you and he says, you're my son. You're my daughter, and I'm well pleased with you. I love you. My, my protection, my favor, my blessing is on you. That's what you receive when you receive me. You receive the blessing that I come to give. You know, and if that's where it ended, that'd be pretty, that'd be okay. You know, think about it. Sin's washed away. Holy Spirit living in you. God telling you how great you are, how much he loves you, not a bad deal. And if that was the end of it, we would make little Christian communes where we live together and we celebrate those things. I'm clean. Holy Spirit's in me. He loves me. Cool. That's the end. But that's not where it ended. Right after that, he sent Jesus back into the wild. So you guys... The new covenant, the reason it's so impactful for our lives is we've been washed clean, we've been made new, we've been given what we don't deserve so that we can step back into the wild of the world that we came from and tell people that you get what you don't deserve, that there's a way made for you. Jesus was sent back into the wild to be tempted, to, to be with the wild animals so that he could tell everybody, have power and authority to say that there's a way made for you that there's a way made for you. You are meant to live in the wild of the world telling people that there's a better way, that there's an opportunity for you to get what you don't deserve, that God has something for you, that he's got a better way for you, he's got a new way for you, that you don't have to earn your way back to God. You can't prove yourself enough to be back to God. No, there's a way made for you. It's a better way, it's a new way. 
and you're made to live in the wild. You're made to live in the wild of the world. You're made to look at the temptations that used to come at you and say, you're not going to overcome me this time. You're made to look at the wild animals that would try to devour you and say that I'm stronger than you are. And you're not going to take me out and you're not going to take the people I love out. That you're made to live in the wild. You're made to step into it because of what you've been given. Because you were given something that you didn't deserve. You were made for it. It's not something you've got to gear up for. You were made for it. When you said yes, he said, all right, I'm giving you my spirit and you're being empowered to go live in that wild. You were made for it. You were made for it. You were made to live in the wild. You know, I got a friend named Cisco. It's a great name. Cisco grew up in the inner city of Chicago. Had a rough life. Grew up with, without a dad. Mom was in and out on a regular basis, took care of himself. You know, had his first son when he was just a kid himself. And you know, he grew up never hearing that there was another way. He, get, he grew up never knowing that you don't get what you deserve. And you know, I met Cisco and we began a friendship and I was able to, to tell him about this new way, about what Jesus had done for him. And then and Cisco gave his life to Jesus. You know, and I still remember one of my favorite days was actually baptizing Cisco in the middle of a public park. It was an incredible opportunity. And we got to see his life begin to totally change and transform because he had experienced getting what he didn't deserve. What he deserved was the punishment and pain that he was living in. But what he got was freedom. What he got was a hope for his future. See, we get what we don't deserve. Today, God wants you to know, if you're in here today and you say, I, I don't know about me. You know, preacher man, you, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the life that I lived. You don't know what's happened to me. The reality is, is God wants to give you what you don't deserve. He wants to wash you clean. He wants to fill you and empower you. He wants you to know that if you've never said, I want to give my life to Jesus, today you can do that. And you can live a life full of God. You can live a life empowered. You can face those old temptations and find victory. You can live in the wild and give people hope for their future. If you want that today, you can have it today. You know, but I wanna also say that I talked to Cisco a few months ago. It was a number of months ago, you know, nine, ten months ago. And, you know, he, he said, man, I'm struggling. And I think there's some people that can identify with that today. He said, I'm struggling. All those old temptations that I thought I was free of, they're, they're just stronger than I thought. And I'm, and I'm struggling, man. I'm, I'm drinking again. I'm drinking every day. It's, it's, a, it's a problem. I don't, I don't know how to stop. I, I don't know what to do. And I was able to remind him, it's not about what you can do, man. You've got the Spirit of God in you. That You can overcome this thing. When God, when God saved you, He equipped you and He empowered you. So, so quit trying to muscle it up and, and recognize that you can't do it on your own. 
Fall on your knees. Receive his forgiveness. Receive his grace. And let God empower you to live the way that you, you know you're, you're called to live. And you know, I talked to him not too long ago, and he said, I'm clean. I've been clean. See, the truth is, is that for some of us, we've given our life to Jesus, but we've fallen back into the old ways. And instead of falling down again and saying, God, I need you, what you've done is you've already made a way for me. Instead, we spend our time trying to prove our way back to God. And I want you to know today, it's time to stop trying to prove yourself. God wants to give you what you don't deserve. He wants you to know that a way has been made for you. Would you stand to your feet with me?